0: to in the queue film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host Andrew, and seeing this film in the theaters is a very fond memory that I have with the guest that we have today. We saw this together when I was out in the theaters in 2006. Is that that's right, right, Aaron? Yeah. Uh, when it first was released. So we we both experienced We're- for the first time together.
1: So this is a
2: really appropriate movie for you two to talk about today. It is indeed. Um, This is Phil, your other co-host. And I saw the film for the first time for the purposes of this episode. And one thing that struck me among others is I wondered if David Fincher has seen this movie because I feel (laughs) like there are definitely some similarities between some of his works and the general kind of feel and and twists and turns of this story.
0: Ah, are
2: you thinking specifically about Gone Girl? Uh, also a little bit of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Girl with the
0: Dragon Tattoo, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the film that we're talking about is a film called Tell No One, which was released in 2006. It's a French film uh, directed by Guillaume Canet, and uh, it's a very interesting film. Uh, but before we talk about it, uh, well, I guess Aaron say hi again to everybody. Uh, you were just on the show just recently, but, uh, mm. due to technical difficulties, we, we kept you from actually having a, an episode released. So we decided that we would do kind of a double header with you. So say yeah, hi. Well.
1: What's
0: going on? <laughs> <laughs> so, so much enthusiasm. Man. Yeah. You can see that you're glad to be on the show. Uh, I So the film is Tell No One, but before we talk about it, I want to tell you how to find us on the web. You can go to our uh, website, which is www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. There you can find everything um, that we post, as well as uh, a comment section where you can leave us comments or suggestions of films that you would like to have us talk about, and then we can have you on the show. You can do that same thing at our Facebook page uh, by searching for In The Q, Q Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil on Facebook you can like that page and uh, get everything in your news feed additionally you can find us on Twitter at, at ITQ Podcast that's our Twitter handle and lastly you can find us by searching iTunes or any of the podcast aggregating apps uh, to find uh, our podcast in the queue Q-U-E-U-E Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil do it that's all I can say do it to it Get er done, as a famous comedian is wont to say. (laughs) So the film uh, that we are watching today, or that we watched for today's episode, is, as I said, Tell No One, a film by Guillaume Canet. And uh, it is a French film, but it is based off of an American potboiler by Harlan Coben. Uh, Mm -hmm. the book goes by the same name as the film. And uh, I remember when this first came out, uh, there was a lot of talk about the fact that it had been adapted from an English source, uh, but had remained remarkably true to the source. And we'll get to talking about that in a little bit. But uh, I want to give people a sense of the film itself. Uh, It concerns uh, a man by the name of Alexandra Beck, uh, who is married to a woman named Margot? Uh, they were childhood sweethearts. They grew up, they got married, uh, were leading a seemingly blissful existence when one night uh, she is abducted and he is knocked unconscious and uh, knocked into a lake. Um, he wakes up sometime later and eight years pass in movie time.
2: Eight long years. Eight
0: long years. And when we rejoin Dr. Beck, he is a medical doctor and a pediatrician, and he is, uh, he has been living these eight long years without his wife, and he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he he wasn't able to find out what happened to her. It's a big hole in his heart. He celebrates the anniversary of her disappearance in kind of a morbid way, or so his friends seem to think. Friends and family members I uh, think that his, mortgage, his preoccupation with his, what they assume is dead wife, is very morbid. And then, on the anniversary of their, the disappearance, the day that he got knocked out and she was abducted, uh, he receives a mysterious email that makes reference to something that would be uh, only between him and his wife. Um, and upon clicking on a link in this email, I, I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, don't <laughs> say too much. I won't say too much. I will tell no one. And <laughs> the essentially, going into this email starts a chain of events that make him believe that his wife may still be alive. And simultaneously to him have going on this journey uh the interest in uh the case that had been closed on him and his wife is kicked back up again by the police because they discovered two bodies at the location where he and his wife uh where this big big event had happened Mm-hmm. And so these bodies lead them to a series of things that lead them to believe that he committed the murder all those years ago. Anyway, I'm getting I'm, one it's, thing. It's very yeah, complex. Like it's a complex. A,
2: a kind of a, an o- a broad kind of overview, you could say, is that it's a thriller about a man who is. Pursued by the police, by criminals,
0: north yeah, by Northwest. kind of. Yeah, it's, it. it's, it's, it's a he, bit of a wrong man just, thriller. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right, but we don't – but there's still a little bit of doubt, though, if Certainly. he is or isn't the wrong man. But still, nonetheless, he's the hero. We're with him the whole time, so we root for him, and it kind of seems like he's he is the wrong man. And I thought this movie was so in line with many other French thrillers that I've seen, so I was really surprised to learn that it's based on an American novel. Yeah. But it is kind of Hitchcockian, definitely. Yeah. Um and in the grand tradition of French thrillers, maybe French movies in general, er, nobody is innocent completely. Everybody
0: <laughs> in the story has some kind of blood on their hands in some way. Yeah, morality is a murky territory. Uh,
2: yeah. Right, it's very existential.
0: Aaron, can you can you tell us why it is that you wanted us to watch this film for the podcast?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, once again, like most of the movies that I bring up, uh, we saw it, uh, and nobody else seemed to see it, and uh, didn't get any recognition, so I'm picking it back up.
0: Yeah, trying to spread the love for good films. You're trying to do a public service here on In the Queue, is what you're saying. I
1: think he's just just trying to pay it
0: forward, I think. (laughs) No,
1: don't start. Uh, Maybe maybe next time we can do
0: the movie, pay it forward. What what do you think about that? (laughs)
1: Uh but no yeah I thought they did all, I thought they did a lot of really interesting things in this movie um like secondary characters they actually gave them time on screen it was really awesome like they weren't just background people Yeah Kristen Scott
0: like, Thomas has a very a yeah. very distinct character arc in this film that's
1: and right. she's and she's
0: not a central character.
1: Yeah mm-hmm. and the, and the detective and even like some of the minor police, but like you start some of the scenes with these minor characters. You don't start with the main characters. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very well done.
0: Yeah. I think that, uh, what you're describing is part of what makes this film so effective and man, is this an effective film? Uh, I think that the fact that you, you get these sort of instant, um, uh, uh pictures of these characters the first time that you meet them or the first couple of times that you meet them. And uh, so you think, you know who they are and what they represent and what they're, what it is going to happen with them, but they may completely go in a different direction. And some of the characters, there there are a couple of characters in this film that I can think of that are absolutely terrifying instantly. Like, like the, they draw such very distinct uh, lines for the characters just upon their introductions and then they proceed in some cases not in all but they proceed to blur those lines and allow those characters to grow and change and allow the world to yeah, alter it's, their it's, it's point something of view.
1: that's really hard to do in 2 hours of film let alone an entire season of a TV show.
0: Mhm. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, and um there's the perspective is like this kind of third person omniscient where we we travel in time and space through different locations of both the perceived good guys, the perceived bad guys, the people that we don't know what they're all about yet. But, um, it, it never, it's kind of weird because this is a movie that's very much about the main protagonist, um, Alexander, but at the same time, it doesn't seem weird or out of place for the camera to, to abandon him. And, show us other people in the world yeah. and what other people are doing. So yeah. it, it has a really interesting kind of unique God-like perspective on all of these characters. Is, is this, is this in Paris? Is that the setting? Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So. so all these people in Paris and, um, they're all kind of united, not just by the fact that they're in the same city, but, but they're all just kind of like pieces of
0: a board game that the director is playing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think, I thought, that, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that the manipulation of that board game is extremely skillful. I think that, I mean, it's probably helpful that they went off of very, uh, a very heavily plotted source material that allowed the script, I'm sure, to uh, mm-hmm. find its way. Uh, I have read the book that, uh, that this is based off of. In fact, it was given to me by another, uh, one of our good friends on in the queue, Christy. Uh, Mm -hmm. she loved the book and uh, the film as well and I remember reading the book, it was some time ago now, it was probably at least eight years ago or more Uh, so I don't remember it too clearly but what I remember about it having watched the film first was that it was one of the most faithful adaptations that I had ever seen of any film uh, from book to film Mm -hmm. Uh, it just, it, it was like every single beat of the film was right there in the book. Boom, 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 boom. So it, you know, the source material did a lot of the heavy lifting. And I think that that works to the film's benefit because they, they don't have to (laughs) fabricate anything. They don't have to come up with any, uh, you know, Harlan Coben, who, who churns out all those, you know, he's like a Janet Ivanovich or a David uh, Baldacci or, you know, you go to the airport and it's, those are the books that are on the shelves mm-hmm. they turn out a million of them they're mystery writers elmore leonard you know that kind of stuff and i uh, was pretty
2: partial to michael Crichton when uh well yeah of course books were coming out <laughs> of course
0: know? unfortunately he is no longer with us he can provide us with right. no more books although there's a new well, michael just... Crichton book coming out which i'm suspicious of is he ghost writing it <laughs> <laughs> quite literally <laughs> uh yeah but i think that 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 allows for a lot of that uh sort of Game playing and sort of, uh, you know, manipulation of the audience and of well, the and like the characters.
1: secondary characters becoming the primary characters, like the um, the gangbanger that he helps with his son. Bruno, We're like, yeah. oh, well, we'll never see that guy again, and then he turns out to be just as important as the main character to the plot.
2: Yeah, and that re- that reminded me so much of Hitchcock and like a yeah. lot of the classic thrillers where the everyday person becomes a hero in their own way in in helping the actual hero. But I was thinking when I was watching this movie that a lot of directors seem to rely on their actors for their film to be good. Mm -hmm. Like they just think, you know, okay, we're going to put this person in this role and the magic will happen when they, when the actors get together and do the scene. But my favorite kind of movies are the ones where the director is the calculating one and the one who will make the film interesting no matter what. Even if the performances suck, the movie is still going to be fascinating because of the way the director engineers the story and because of the way that's written. And uh, there are some really great, exciting directorial flourishes in this movie. There's an amazing, like there's a jaw-dropping scene where Alexandra is running through busy traffic,
1: Yes. Yeah. and it's like and you clearly can it's 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 in real time. They're not it's at, not
2: CGI. And...
1: Yeah, it's fantastic.
2: And there's an um, there's an amazing car crash that's just like really. I mean, I don't. I've seen a lot of movies, but it was breathtaking. <laughs> yeah. And um, the only the only complaint that I would lodge about this story is that. The film did not – for a thriller, it didn't really thrill me until a good 40 or 45 minutes into the story. There's a lot of kind of build and character, and I felt like they were almost trying to shy away from making it exciting. But it does deliver excitement later, though.
1: uh, To that point, the music in the film I thought was really well done in that it it wasn't normal thriller music most of the time it was actually kind of more of a like a melancholy yeah yeah soundtrack like yeah it was it was you
2: mean like this the songs like this yeah yeah yeah. And and there's
1: also some instrumental stuff in there that's even when he's running away it's 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 yeah i don't know like trying to make us feel something different than we normally would in a thriller.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that... I mean, you mentioned that U2 song. Uh, it plays yeah. with or out, without you at a at a crucial moment of discovery in the film. That it, I, is one of my favorite scenes in the film. I think it's just such a wonderful... There's such a wonderful build to it that uh, is satisfying. It pays off, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it really... It's not you know, it, it doesn't have that like... You know, it doesn't have this driving score that's telling you how to feel about it. It more underscores the... Not only does it further the the plot by allowing you into sort of a shared uh, experience of the main character, but it allows you to understand his relationship to his wife better. It allows you to understand... Uh, the depth of their characters better. I, I think it's just like a it's a brilliant uh, flourish
2: the The flourishes that really worked for me uh, up until uh, this, this this is not really giving away too much, but there's a there's a pivot in the film when Alexandra has to really run for his life and he yeah. realizes that he is he's in trouble, and that's when things really kicked in for me. But before then, the parts that I really did, Kind of get the most out of were musical as you mentioned Aaron, because it seems like the director he sprang to life when he was directing a scene that had uh, a song that kind of accompanied it, uh, whether it was a montage uh, or whether it was just a a very kind of long fluid camera movement that the music fit really nicely with
1: yeah.
2: um, those kind of really cinematic and really calculated moments kind of really thrilled me. There's one in particular amazing, uh, shot that I was like, wow, this, this director is so inventive and he's so calculating and he's so creative with his camera. I was missing more of this. Is it's a, it's a recollection of the actual cremation of the, um, the the coffin where his wife is, is in, And the camera actually, like, uh, it moves in towards the open, I don't know what you call those things, the the crematorium. And the camera moves towards it. And then there's a later shot where the camera's actually inside. And it's moving deeper and deeper into it. And it moves past these flames that are flickering right by the lens. And then the door shuts. And we're actually in there with the body. And I was like, oh, I, I really feel so kind of jazzed up by this you know, this direction. And a lot of the film is, and I'm not saying it's a fault. I'm just saying it, it sets you up for a different kind of a story where you're building the characters, you're building the the relationships, you're building the melancholy of the main dude and the people around him. And then it doesn't really kind of get into high gear until almost nearly halfway through. And
1: I, I mean, still, I would think, yeah. I would think maybe it's a, uh like um similar to the exorcism of Emily Rose where yeah yeah people people go in and be like this is supposed to be a horror movie and it turns out not to be the standard thing and so people get disappointed with that I think this was meant to be a human story firstly and then a thriller second
0: mhm yeah and and I think that uh, I think that the thrill part of it only works as well as it does because of the groundwork that is laid early in the film i think that the emotional sort of sucker punches that this movie pulls and i think that there are a number of them i think that they only work because you have all of this build at the beginning Uh, i mean the truth is that the inciting incident of the film happens what maybe three minutes in Something like that. So there's some excitement right off the bat. And then I think that the length of time where it seems like nothing's really going on is drawn out for at least some period of time. Because I think that it allows you to settle into the headspace of the main character and kind of where he's at. Um, Yeah, I
1: mean, like, what do you think about this compared to, like, Cachet?
0: Oh, I was actually,
1: I was actually,
2: I was comparing it to Caché as I was watching it, and I was actually feeling that Caché had more, more of what I wanted from, from this film. Um, That's interesting. I mean, maybe I'm only remembering all of the exciting parts of Caché, because it's been a while, but I was thinking like.
1: It's, 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 it's definitely slower than this movie. I was going to
0: say, Caché only has one moment of action in it at all. When it's. (laughs) It's a big moment of action.
2: (laughs) Well, you you, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, bloody violence to constitute being thrilled. Sure, Um, sure. But I I think that, yeah, Caché had like an overall sense of threat and menace and dread that um, kind of hangs over everything. Uh, starting from very early on in the film because you're not sure starting from the first, what you're shot getting of the film <laughs> yeah yeah and and with uh, I mean with with Tell no one, um, it it didn't have that same kind of sense of urgency I felt for for a long time. but this is just my personal preference. and it's not even sure. something that I'm gonna fight to the death about because I still think it's a good film. And when you get to the very end of Tell no one, I feel like you really earned that ending based on the way that it's been built up. And it does kind of, it does definitely come together. Well,
1: and that final scene is so well directed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's insane.
2: But yeah. the one thing that this movie did, it kind of charmed me because I, I remember what it was like to, you know, walk down the street and not have immediate and complete access to the internet at all times with my phone. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. you know,
2: because this movie is like uh, shot in two thousand six, but I guess you know, in in some parts of Europe, uh, even then they're not quite as caught up with us in terms of
0: technology. Well, two thousand six, the iPhone hadn't even been released.
2: Yeah, I guess you're right.
0: Yeah, it didn't at least until two thousand eight or two thousand nine. The
2: main character has to run to like an internet cafe to be able to to get his crucial email that he's been expecting, and it's a really kind of. Uh, charming, but also
0: uh, it is a thrilling scene, that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my favorites. Um, but but also, I also enjoyed,
1: I mean, there was also some great subtle humor in the movie too. Like with the detective, that detective was so funny.
0: Yeah. 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 Even I mean, just
1: a little, like when he has him hold the dog and he's like, well, I don't know what the fuck to do with this dog. <laughs> just not verbally, but yeah, it's pretty great.
0: Yeah. he's yeah. he 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 does a lot of, he's got a very expressive face. And he does a lot of emoting with that face. I think it's great. Um, This world weary detective who, you know, has his doubts about the story that everybody else is trying to push.
2: It it also reminded me, uh, in some ways, I was thinking of Cachet, but I was also thinking about some of the classic Jean Pierre Melville scenes that I've seen, yeah, 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 um, from like the Red Circle,
0: specifically,
2: which is like a real ensemble piece as well as being a thriller. Um, I mean, that maybe not so much like Le Samurai, but specifically Red Circle, there's so many different players and it has the same kind of godlike perspective where we're sometimes we spend with the criminals, sometimes with the detectives, and then we just kind of watch it all unfold. And I guess Schadenfreude is a German term, but it certainly applies to some <laughs> French
0: thrillers. Yeah, sure, sure. Or maybe you know, I mean, maybe like uh, a fantastic Michael Mann film from nineteen ninety-five called Heat. <laughs> God, I don't know if you've heard of it or not. Oh,
2: is that it's like the... uh, like Kings of Summer? One of those little-known films?
1: No, no. <laughs>
2: um, I've seen. It. I can't believe we haven't done Heat on the show. I, I, I can't know. if you haven't you haven't invented an identity <laughs> and requested it for yourself to force us to
0: do it? Yeah. If there's anybody out there who wants to talk. Uh, about Heat uh, for six and a half hours, uh, <laughs> then please come on the show. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that this, I, I was so happy to get to watch this again because I hadn't watched it I think since we <laughs> saw it? <laughs> since we saw it originally. I don't think I had seen it since then. And yeah, I um, It was a real pleasure to watch it again. And as Aaron and I were kind of discussing before the podcast started, I forgot a lot of the twists and turns in this, even though I had also read the book more recently than, than I had seen the film. Uh, I still forgot the twists and turns. So it was not, it was a surprise all over again. It was wonderful.
2: I Yes. That's what Alexander Pope said. Blessed are the forgetful for they always make the better of their blunders.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or one of the quotes that I put on my senior page, which was, uh, those who are proud of an orderly desk will never know the joy of finding something that they thought was irretrievably lost.
2: Was that your only senior quote?
0: No, no. I I, I did a full page of text. There were like a hundred of them.
2: Oh, we only got like a
0: couple of lines. Yeah, yeah. No, we got, we got a full page. Damn. Yeah, man. That's pretty good. Well, you know, that's how we roll.
2: That's how they do it in St. Louis, apparently. That's right. Oh. That's
0: right. Uh, so, yeah, Aaron, thank you so much for bringing this uh, to the podcast. Um, I'm also happy that we could do this because uh, I, too, want more people to see this film because I think it's a great film. It's easily accessible on Netflix right now. You can watch it mm-hmm. this moment in high definition. Uh, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's a really, uh, I mean, if you enjoy the twists and the turns and the sort of intrigue of some classic Hitchcock films, or like we said, a lot of these great French thrillers or even American crime thrillers, like, uh, the recent David Fincher movies. Um, mm-hmm. this is the movie for you. Cause it's, it's got all of that and more. It's really, it's really, I, I love it. I think it's great.
2: I also liked it a lot too. Um, you know, minus just, the one if,
0: caveat that you were bringing up. If
2: if three people all agree completely that the movie's great, it doesn't make for as
0: good listening. <laughs> I feel. Sure, sure, um, but uh, yeah, I think that I think that you get the thumbs up from us, uh, even even with those caveats. Is that right, Phil?
2: I give it a thumbs up. I think just um, you know it is kind of a long film. It's a little bit over two hours. I think like um, you know some patience and a, a lot of you know people don't like watching foreign films because of the subtitles so i think that it's the kind of film that does kind of merit you to pay attention to and catch all the connections and then you'll be rewarded do
1: um, those people listen to this podcast
0: the people who don't? <laughs> hey, nobody listens
1: Can't to read? this
2: podcast
0: we're always do trying we to grow to our listening? audience <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so, so thanks, Aaron, uh, for bringing this back to the podcast. Uh, it was a joy to talk with you about Tell No One. Uh, yeah, just a great, great fun film. Uh, I hope that you will all join us uh, for our next film, uh, which is yet to be decided upon, but uh, we will uh, be letting you know soon enough. Uh, keep an eye on our various different sites that we mentioned earlier, and, uh, and we'll catch you next time.